The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. God's people said, amen. Well, I invite you, uh, surprise, in the book of Hebrews, no, uh, the book book of Revelation, if you will, to Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1. Our title for this sermon, and before I get started, uh, just a couple housekeeping things. Uh, He's going to get sick of me saying his name, but he deserves uh, a lot of uh, just uh, kudos, as we say. Thank you, Ben. Uh, Van Holsten, for uh, one, for organizing with your wife, among other people, the directory, the photo directory. If you're a member, those are out back there. Uh, We believe we've covered and checked all the bases. I'm sure you will find things that are wrong, numbers, commas, names, dates, whatever. Uh, Thank you for your grace. But the first soft launch draft, if you will, version 1.0 is out there. Ben, thank you for doing that, as always. And Ben, thank you for making this. I got the bad copy. This is not do justice. Ben made this cool little sermon I don't know, image, title, bumper thing. I don't know what you call it. Thank you, brother, for doing that. A lot of behind-the-scenes artistic stuff has fallen on his shoulders. So if you get a chance, go give him a noogie and rub his head or something. Give him a hug. I don't care. Uh, We appreciate him. And so, brother, thank you so much. Our title for this whole sermon series is God Wins. Does that make sense? God Wins. No, who's God? Well, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yes, but God wins. You know, Revelation is one of these books that when you ask most church people what book they want to study, they, of course, say Revelation. And when you ask most pastors what book they do not want to preach, they, of course, say Revelation. It is one of those books I'm quite cer- certain that, as Revelation 8.1 says, there's a silence of 30 minutes uh, during Revelation where there's just silence in heaven. I'm pretty sure that's going to be for every pastor to correct their theology on the book of Revelation because everyone has a thought about it. Everyone has a a theory about it, but really to boil it down is God wins. That's it. Revelation is a book that has puzzled, confused, and frustrated the minds of the best biblical scholars. It was a book that neither John Calvin nor Martin Luther, those great reformers, wanted to write a commentary on. In fact, Luther, in his, his German brashness, said it this way. He said, quote, My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. There is one sufficient reason for the small esteem which I hold this book, that Christ is neither taught nor recognized. And I thought, Luther, I don't know what book you just read, but I don't think that's the revelation we read. Because Christ is lifted high, and Christ is magnified. One of the wonders of this book is that even the scholars throughout the ages have struggled with it. So before we even get started with it, you may have a different opinion of it than me. I may have a different opinion of it of you. But guess what? The greatest miracle isn't that you check off every box of revelation. The greatest miracle is that you were a sinner and you've been saved by the Lord who wins it all. That is the greatest miracle you have. And so if you disagree, if you are one that you're a left behind series, pre-tribulation dispensationalist, that there's going to be a rapture and your clothes fall to the ground, great. If you're an all-millennialist and you believe it's all symbolic, wonderful. What we agree upon is who wins the battle, and that is God himself revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we agree on. I've been in churches, I've seen churches, not necessarily split, but people get upright and mad and just leave because the pastor doesn't agree or they don't agree, whatever, about this book. Stop it. This was meant to be a book to bring people together. 
And we have to beware of the very thing that often separates people. The first century reader of this book would not have had a calculator, a calendar, or some other apparatus in hand reading this book. They were uneducated. They were illiterate. They would have just heard it and remembered that their Savior was coming, and that would have given them hope in the midst of their revelation. The book of Revelation is not intended to drive us to charts. It's intended to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 19, 119, 81 through 88, one of the quotes in there says it this way. It says, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. I pray today you're not hoping in, in your charts and your theories about revelation, but in who Christ is. Is that clear enough? I think it is. Look, we live in a Genesis 3 world full of sin. We live in a Matthew 28 world where we're to go and make disciples. We live in a Revelation 21 future where Christ is coming back. He's already won. And we have an Isaiah 40 God that he's with us and he never leaves us. And what Revelation is about is to be written to a group of people who are shaking in their faith to remind them that they have an unshakable God. Can I ask you, when was the last time you went to bed with the thoughts about the return of Christ, the second coming, the contents of Revelation on your mind? Or is it just a passing thought? We're very busy these days. That's one reason why I think this is a sufficient study. And does someone you love doubt the second coming? Jesus answered that question, or or Paul answered, excuse me, Peter, Paul, Peter, Jesus, one of those guys answered that question when he said in 2 Peter 3, 8, but do not overlook this fact, beloved, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand days, and a thousand days is as one. Christ is coming again. The return of Christ is the great hope of every Christian. But I want to remind you our God wins. I'm going to quote something from one of the commentators I'm leaning on, and we all have commentators we lean on, whether you acknowledge them or not. Vern Pothras, who writes out of Westminster in California, says this. He says, quote, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Don't try and puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied with isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the overall story. Praise the Lord, cheer for the saints, detest the beast, long for the victory. That's it. Let us pull up our stakes from this world. Let us begin to look to the horizon and wait to be alert and dressed in the readiness of the return of Christ. Come, Lord Jesus Christ, come, end quote. This morning, you are going to get more overview than you care for. I sent this outline to my Presbyterian friend, Brian. He said, you're becoming more Presbyterian because that's a two-hour sermon, Darren. I said, well, we have 40 minutes, so here we go. Are you ready for this? If you have a bulletin, the notes will be up there. If you don't have a bulletin and you want to take notes, figure it out otherwise. I'm not sure what to tell you, but it's there. But what I would like us to do is read Revelation 1 in its entirety. Next week, we'll get into verses 1 to 3 and the verses thereon. But I just want to give the, the context. So if you'll stand up with me this morning, Revelation chapter 1. If you're visiting with us or you don't have your Bible, these blue pew Bibles, it is on page 1028, 1028. And that is on the first chapter, the big number 1, down to the big number 2. And I say that many of you uh, are long seasoned in Bible stuff, but for our kids or if you're visiting, if you're not used to the Bible, it can be a new thing. So thank you for your patience with that, but uh, it helps teach us all, I pray. Revelation 1, all the way down to chapter 2. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must come to take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the books of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and those who keep what is written, for the time is near. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who, is, who was and who is to come, 
and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the earth, kings of the earth. To him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us the kingdom of priests to God and Father. To him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Stop right there for a second. One of the famous numbers of Revelation is fours. Are you noting those fours there? And he says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Verse 8, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. And I, John, verse 9, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, that's Sunday, by the way, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned, verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on him I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. And verse 14, the hairs on his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet, verse 15, were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, or like a dead man. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I hold the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things, verse 20, that you have seen, verse 19, that there those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And everyone's minds are already swirling and going, who are the seven spirits? Who are, we'll get there. Big overview today. Will you pray with me? God wins. That's what we're here to celebrate today. God wins. Let's pray together. Father, as we read this first chapter, for all the good context and Bible study purposes, we just simply stand in awe that you are the one that we all should fall like John as a dead man to. But in Christ, Father, you sent your Son to come, to live, to take on human flesh, to live the perfect life we couldn't live, to die the sacrificial, propitiatory death we couldn't take, to absorb the, the wrath of God in your Son, to be buried and rise again. And even here, as he said, he holds the death to keep the death uh, and keys to, to Hades, Lord. He holds them both. So grateful are we. May you give us wisdom in this study. Father, I pray two things. I pray you would guard us against simply accumulating knowledge about end times things. And I pray you keep us from hysterics that drive so many people to chase headlines and things that are of this world. Would you ground us in the fact that you always ground us in, that we have a Savior who's on his throne, and he reigns, and he reigns forevermore. And yes, he's returning, and we are here to worship him, know him, and know how to better articulate the gospel of him. May we love each other more. May we love you all the more. And may you be glorified in the midst. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. May be seated. Well, the first thing I want to give you today are some orientating observations. Orientating observations. To orient means you go, uh, some of you geocache. 
I think uh, I know some geocachers here I see in the back there. To geocache, you, you go around and you find things. To orient means you find your way. These are observations about the text. They will be up on the screen. The blanks, of course, are all A's. So sorry, it's alliteration starting the new book. Uh, you can just deal with it, right? First, you have a revelation. You have a revelation. You notice as your title here, it's called the Revelation of John. The word, Greek word for revelation literally means an unveiling or an unparting or uh, a tearing apart. It is something that means you are given new knowledge. So the revelation, if you're King James, it may say the revelation of St. John. Really, it's not. Now, let me say this. Many of you say it's revelations with an S at the end. Stop that. It's revelation with an N. Got that? I will mess it up too. It's not plural. There's one. It's a revelation. It was given to John. And this revelation, John being the author, how do we know who the author is? Well, he tells you. Did you notice that? In verse 5, he said, or verse 4, John to the seven churches. And then in verse 1, he says, uh, his servant John this was the very John we read about in John 19 in small group hour that Jesus gave his mother's uh, uh, care to, John the apostle. This was John who probably lived until he was 80 or 90 years old. He was a very young man when he was an apostle. And yet this is the John. But he's given a revelation, an unveiling about what's to happen. And he has an audience. Who is the audience? Well, he first off tells you, doesn't he? He tells you it's written to seven churches. John, verse 4, to the seven churches that are in Asia. The fun part about this is this is in modern-day Turkey, and it's almost like a mail route. Our son has always wanted to be a mailman, and, and I thought of him in this because it's, it's like a circle of churches, and we'll get to that in the coming weeks. He starts in one church, and he circles around physically, if you will, in the map, his audience. What was going on with his audience? They were persecuted. They were hopeless. Some of them were struggling like the people of Hebrews to hold on to their faith. And he's writing them a revelation, a vision given to him to encourage them in this time. Yet at the same time, this is probably the most practical book of all the New Testament because this is a word for you today. This is a word for you too because it's a pastoral epistle for all ages. It is something that reminds us that the audience then is not much different than the audience today. We're still struggling. The gospel still not, it seems, making much headway anywhere. But yet God is reigning. God is working in ways we cannot see. So there's a revelation. He's writing through the author John. And here's an audience. It's a persecuted audience spread about through the modern-day eastern Turkey. Got those down? Let's go to the next three or four. There's also allusions. There's also allusions. And I will get more on this in the, in the details ahead. But an allusion is, is a foreshadowing. is something that's to come. And these allusions that are happening here is this is probably the most Old Testament book outside the 39 Old Testament books. In fact, of over the 400 verses in Revelation, there are over 500 allusions or, or, or pictures back to the Old Testament. That's why when we were debating internally, at least in my head more than anything, about what we were going to preach, Genesis or Revelation, we usually go preach a New Testament book. And, and do the law gospel thing and go back to the Old Testament. But we saw that Revelation is really just an Old Testament book rehashed with New Testament spin. And so the only books, and here's a little Bible trivia for you you can impress your friends with. The only three Old Testament books that are not quoted in Revelation are Haggai, Ruth, and Esther. Haggai, Ruth, and Esther. 
All other 36 books find some allusion here or pointing back to in the book of Revelation. It's also apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Can you say that fast? I tried and I failed many times this week. Apocalyptic. That is, that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reverse this for you. Get this if you're taking notes. Symbolism is the default here before literalism. What? I thought we're supposed to read our Bibles literally. Yes and no. When Jesus said he's a vine, do you really believe your Savior has like an arm that shoots off like a vine? Will you believe that Jesus is a, 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 a sheep or a, a, or a gate? Is he literally a gate? No, he's not. There is symbolic language that happens even in the midst of things. So church, I want you to get this. You are to read the Bible in the context which it is given. This is apocalyptic literature. That means it is usually like the Old Testament, it is something that is something that is speaking of images that are greater than the realities they are portraying right there. John is describing things. Pastor Nelson will be preaching in a couple weeks, and he's going to get the the verses that say, it was like this. It was like this. It was like this. Because John is only writing down what he could do. So for many of you, this is going to be a change. The default in apocalyptic literature is symbolism. There are literal realities, yes, but be careful that before you read a detail, the symbolism trumps the literalness. Are we saying the book of Revelation is not true? No, I didn't say that. We are reading it as apocalyptic with the realities that come with it. There's also an arrangement that comes. There's also an arrangement that comes. You're going to see a series of seven descriptions of the same events over and over. The number seven is going to come in over and over and over and over. We have some extra study guides in the back if you want to take one. But the book of Revelation is a cycle of sevens, a cycle of sevens. Some take it as future or chronological, but I think the best take is probably a cycle of seven. And what is the purpose of the book of Revelation? What is it? What's the big idea? Help me. God wins. God wins. That's the aim. It is there so you can know fully and finally that Satan has defeated death, or Satan has been defeated, death has been defeated, Christ reigns. He who remains faithful until he comes will rule with him. That is the book of Revelation. But I want to tell you, when you come to this book, you might get some weird feels. Are you ready about this? Here are some feelings that you might get as you come to the book. The first one is this. You might feel a little bit of fear. I hope you do. You might feel a little bit of fear. Fear, specifically what it means for you, what it means for the world, what it alludes to, not being able to understand it, Fear that the language presented is too hard for you, and it's not. Fear that the symbols are too out there for you, and they're not. Fear, perhaps, that you're afraid of the creatures. I mean, uh, beasts and dragons and uh, flying things, oh my, eat your heart out, uh, 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 whatever her name was, in Wizard of Oz. Dorothy, thank you, Dorothy. But this is the word of God, so let's have hope. There should be some fear and trembling when you come before the holy, holy, holy God of the universe. But not because of the things presented, but because of who he is. There's also the feeling about marginalizing the book. I've said it before. Luther didn't want to have anything to do with this. People want to hear it. Pastors don't want to preach it. So what do we do with it? We just tuck it away. That's the redheaded stepchild. We'll let the fanatics on uh, TBN talk about that stuff, right? 
Jack Van Impey, you know, what? I'm not going to list their names. They don't need their names. But sometimes we just put it away because we don't know what to do with it. So what do we do with things we don't know what to do? In a church, we stuff it in a bus barn or a closet. At home, we just put it under the bed. But here, we just don't talk about it. But here's the other extreme. Some people sen- sensationalize the book. Do you know what I mean by that? Today, Israel signed a peace treaty with Russia. (sighs) Stalin dies. Hitler rises to power. The Great Wall falls. Did you hear about the Bible codes? That if you take a scientific program and type it in, then it's going to tell you all the famous... Guys... There are some people who are more sold out about their interpretation or their understanding of revelation than they are about the very God that it talks about. Be careful. We treat it like a puzzle book. We headline chase. We read all the historical versions instead of seeing it as a picture book. Be careful. If you are more concerned about chasing every headline and dotting every T with the modern prophecies, be careful. Be careful. Jesus said, watch out for certain things, but be careful you don't sensationalize it to a point that your obsession is not Jesus Christ and his glory. It's about dotting every I and crossing every T. And if you haven't met him before, you'll know him. And they break churches apart. And they tear apart people's faith. Because if you don't see revelation like them, then you must not be a Christian like them. Don't do that. We're better than that. Because we love Jesus more than that. Amen? So why is it difficult? Why is it difficult? You see that it's difficult for a variety of reasons. First, it's difficult because of the type of literature that it is. The type of literature that it is is apocalyptic. Say that again. We don't like the Old Testament. Generally, we don't read the Old Testament. And there are many who have a theological uh, 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 medical diagnosis version to it that we just don't read it. And the book is based upon it. After all, we're not under law but grace, pastor. So why do we need the Old Testament? Well, we need the Old Testament, Paul said in Romans 15, 4, because what was written in the past is needed for our instruction today. We don't see the Old Testament as Christian literature, then why would we go into it? Let me say it again. The type of literature that is here is that there are 404 verses in Revelation, but there are over 500 references back, cross-references, allusions back to the Old Testament. Most of those references come from Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Some of you remember we tried from January 1-ish, 2020, right up into the pandemic, we were preaching a chapter a week on Ezekiel. And we were all just eyes wide open sort of thing. So we've tried that. But we usually don't preach Ezekiel or Psalms all the way through or Isaiah or Daniel. We kind of spot check them. In fact, Daniel, we love the first six chapters of Daniel, the lion's den, the furnace, and all these things. But when Daniel starts talking about visions, we're like, oh, Get back in your closet over there, buddy. We don't need any of that stuff in this church right here. We just don't preach it because of the type of literature. But I want you to know that this is exactly what it is. We have to know just the sheer volume of quotations from the Old Testament require that we understand this is important. But then the symbols. Are you ready for this? Can I give you a breakdown of some of these symbols? There are colors you got to watch out for. Look at Revelation 1.13. Got your Bible open still? Revelation 1.13. He says, and in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his head, or his, his, his chest. You have to understand all the golden things. And then there are animals, dragons and beasts and horses, oh my. What do these things mean? 
Are those are are are, are the uh, uh, demons Apache helicopters like Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins said in Left Behind series? What happens if the book of Revelation doesn't come to be and helicopters aren't there in 200 years? Thank you, Nelson, for that quote. It makes it difficult. And then there are the lampstands of Revelation 1.20. What do we do with this? How do we go about them? And then did you notice how many spirits of God were before the throne of God? How many were there? How many? We read Revelation 1. How many spirits of God were there? There were seven spirits of God. Wait, I thought there was one spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. You have to know there are lots of symbols going on. Lots of symbols going on. We will unpack all of these things. But then there are the numbers. Are you ready for this? How many of y'all love numbers? Are there any number lovers here? Some of y'all? Are, are, okay, I, I was looking at our resident engineers, and they were slow to raise their hands. Maybe they're burnt out of the numbers. I'm not sure, but it's good. I'm glad you got that, brother, with that. There are numbers everywhere. Sometimes the actual numbers are used. Sometimes they're referenced other ways. The number seven is used a lot. It appears twice in chapter 1, verse 4. Then verse 11, 12, 16, 20, it appears six times. There are seven churches. You ready for this? I hope you can keep notes with this very quickly. I'm going to give you like 20 in a row. You ready for this? There are seven churches, seven spirits, seven golden lampstands, seven stars, seven seals, seven horns, Eyes, angels, trumpets, thunders, crowns, heads, plagues, bowls, hills, kings, seven beatitudes, and 7,000 killed because of the earthquake. If you just put that down, you are stenographer of the year. Congratulations. But then there's also the number seven, the completeness. There's a completeness of judgment. There's a completeness of victory. There's a completeness of glory and of praise. That's just number seven. And then there's number three. Three probably more important than number seven. Number three refers to the triune God. There is one God in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, yet it's used 12 times. The word three is, or the number three, in chapter one alone. And I won't go through all those, but you're blessed three times. Blessed is the one who reads. Blessed are those who hear. Blessed are those who keep. Verse four, he says, who was, who is, and who, what, is to come. You see three, and so on and so forth. And then there's the three that refers to the false trinity of the beast, the dragon, and the false prophet. Number seven, number three. How about the number four? It's kind of like Revelation bingo, isn't it? Do you got your board covered yet? <laughs> the number four, there are four corners, four winds, four angels, four living creatures. He speaks in fours. In Revelation 5.13, will you go over there quickly? Revelation 5.13. I want to show you one that's very famous. We use this a lot in missionary sending and uh, in missionary uh, kind of sermons or mission sermons. Revelation 5, 13, talking about the nations and talking about those who are going to be saved and, and, and how we reach them. Actually, we'll start in Revelation 5, 12. It says, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Are you counting with me? And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, verse 13, and the sea, and all them say to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be honor and glory, might and blessing forever and ever. Do you see all the fours? They're there. Heaven, earth, under the earth, in the sea. Blessing, honor, glory, power. I won't give you all the references, but I'll read them for sake of time. Revelation 6, 8, there's a sword, a famine, a disease, and a beast. Revelation 8, 5, there's flashes of uh, of lightning, rumblings, thunder, and earthquake. Revelation 9, 21, there's murders, witchcraft, fornication, and thefts. 
Revelation 10:11, people, nation, language, kings. Revelation 18:22, harps, musicians, flutes, and trumpets. So what numbers are important? You keep in track. Number seven. Number three. Number four. Do we have a bingo yet? We're getting there. And number 12 is next. Number 12 speaks of the complete people of God. Complete people of God. There are 12 tribes. There are 12 apostles. And there are 12 plus 12 equals 24. There are 24 elders. There are 12 stars above the world of the woman's head, excuse me. There are 12 foundations on which are the names of the 12 apostles. There are 12 uh, uh, different types of restoration going on at the tree of life. And then if you sneak over, you're still in Revelation 5. Go to Revelation 7, the chapter everybody loves to try and figure out, right? The 144,000. Who are those folks? We'll get there in, uh, I think, October is when we're scheduled to do that. Hang tight. Someone asked me, this is not in my notes, in our Sunday school class, I think it was, yeah, I don't remember who it was. Somebody said, is, it, is this going to take two and a half years like it took you to go through the gospel of Mark? No, maybe. Is it going to be 15 months like it was Hebrews? Maybe. I don't know. But uh, we might string this. I'm just kidding. We'll go as fast as we need to go. But you notice there in Revelation 7, verses 5 through 8, 12, 12, 12, 12 times 12 is 144, and 12,000 times 12,000 is 144,000. 12 is a very important number. It's a very important number. So you have three, you have four, you have seven, you have 12. That's really the four big numbers that are important in the book of Revelation. I know, we don't have a, the bingo, the bingo is assumed, so if you didn't get it, you didn't get the right card. Sorry, I see you over there, Tim, taking notes. You, you, I know, you're getting there. Four, seven, three, twelve. There you go. So that's where we, that's why it's hard. It's apocalyptic. There are symbols everywhere. There are numbers everywhere. But I guarantee you, let me say it again. If a church that was young in its infancy with illiterate people reading this for the first time, hearing this for the first time can get it, you can too. By God's grace, and you will. I want to talk to you for a moment about the approaches to the book. The approaches to the book. I'm going to give you four. There are many more. These are the four uh, uh, main ones, four or five main ones that are out there. And I want you to know, and I'll share a little bit where I'm at, although I'm not firm in the ground with it. I want you to know what people have taught about the book of Revelation and kind of the filter, hermeneutic, or, or interpretive lens of which they have. The first is a word that may be a surprise to many of you. It's called preterism or preterit. Preterit just means full or complete. It means uh, that which has gone past. There are some who believe the book of Revelation was completely fulfilled in A.D. 70. A.D. 70, for you history buffs, is when the temple of Jerusalem fell down, the destruction of the temple. And according to this view, everything recorded in the book of Revelation was done by that time John wrote the book. And there are full preterists. There are those who believe it fully happened in AD 70. There are some who believed it partially happened in AD 70. I'll let you dive in the details of that. But the problem, of course, is if everything was done by AD 70, that kind of leaves the rest of us high and dry, doesn't it? I mean, that's kind of the problem. I have good brothers who hold to this and, and their brothers. Again, we're not questioning someone's salvation based on their end-time views. Amen? I would disagree with them, but I, that, that, is, that is a real critique of it. The next one is a historical position. 
we quote a lot of old dead guys here, don't we? The Puritans, guys who've gone by, guys and, and gals even who've had time and space for their theology to be filtered through the Bible and, and history to, as to whether or not it's true. And, and those old dead guys held to what's called the historist view. In other words, it's kind of a church development from the day of Pentecost until the end of the world. The question with the historicist is, where do you think we are now in the book of Revelation? There's church ages, there's this age, there's that age, and, and it just depends. I think one of the hardest parts about this is that it's a very Western understanding of the book of Revelation. Not saying it's completely wrong. In fact, most of the people we quote in this church would hold to this position. But I think it's a very Western understanding a lot of times of what it is. There's also the futurist. And if I'm honest here, I think most of you in this room probably fall under this camp. In the early 1800s, a man by the name of John Nelson Darby was born. Other than having the middle name of our beloved pastor of everything, Nelson, that probably doesn't mean much to you. But by the late 1800s, there was a famous Bible that came out called the Schofield Reference Bible. Show of hands, no shame, no guilt, just curious how many of y'all have or have heard of that, the Schofield Reference Bible. Okay, great Bible. And here's why it was great, because in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was the first Bible that actually taught you in study notes and cross-references about what was happening in the Bible. It was great. But out of that came an interpretation called the Futurist Interpretation. It says that only the book of Revelation is only going to happen after chapter 4. The first three, they can really only preach Revelation 1 to 3 because the future hasn't happened yet. Can I give you some big names that would fall under here? Names you know well. Charles Stanley. Uh, can I just, let's just go to the radio preachers. David Jeremiah. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, etc. This is your classical, run-of-the-mill stuff that's taught on the end times. Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jing. Okay, come on, confession time. How many of y'all read cover to cover the Left Behind series books? How many of y'all still go to the bookstore and want to buy them every time? How many of y'all have ever taken them off someone else's hands? Have a set. If you need them, Tina's got them. All right? There's nothing wrong with this position. In fact, this is where the classic rapture comes through. This is where most people believe that at the, at the beginning of the tribulation, that, that you're gonna, the church is going to be raptured out and clothes are going to fall to the ground and planes are going to crash and the Antichrist is going to come. The difficulty with this interpretation is, is that everything after chapter 3 is irrelevant to all but one generation of believers that have yet to come. The futurist is only the future. It doesn't apply to anyone up to that time. Most people are here. That's number three. Number four is the idealist approach, the idealist approach. The idealist approach is like that person in the room who takes a little, uh, uh, just wants to take the principles out of everything. We're not going to get in the details of the weeds. We're just going to give you the principles. They interpret the book of Revelation as a book that contrasts the victorious Christ with the, uh, uh, the non-victorious Satan. The apocalypse is not a history of events that have occurred, but that will happen. But they want to share the principles of the book. What can we learn about our faith from the book? This is a very safe interpretation because you don't really upset anybody. You just teach them about their faith. So here are the questions that most people would ponder. The preterists would, would answer the question, when did it happen? They'd say 70 AD. The historicists would say, where are we now in the process? The futurists would ask, how close are we to chapter 4? The idealists would ask, how do we have hope from this passage about Jesus Christ? Are you confused yet? I'm going to throw one out to you that I'm loosely hanging on, and I'm not asking our staff or anyone else preaching it to hang on to. This is called the eclectic view. 
Maybe it's because I like buffets. I don't know. But the eclectic view, if you're called an eclectic person, that may or may not be a good thing. I don't know. But an eclectic person is usually someone who has lots of interests and lots of things. The eclectic view says that Revelation gives us a prophecy of what will happen at the end of the age. It's literal, it's symbolic, but it takes the strengths of every other view and puts it into one. But here's the problem with the eclectic view. When you take the best of one view, you also have to sometimes have weak points. And the weak point is it doesn't have any consistency. It just takes the best. At some point, it breaks down. So what do we do with all this? We are going to view the book of Revelation as the word of God, and we will work through it. Some will be symbolic, some will be literal, but we will always point it back to Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we know. That's what I want you to hold your hat on. You say, Darren, I don't fit in any of those boxes. That's okay. Do you know Jesus? That's the box you need to fit in the most. Hang on to that. As we close, I want to make sure we understand what this is. We have the approaches. You've talked about the fear, the marginalization. I want to finally talk about some, app, some big picture looks. What does this book mean for you? What does this book mean for you? First off, the glory of the triune God. Why do we do all that we do? What is, to, to quote the old Westminster Catechism that my brother Willie here, in a good way, got into my skin over the years I served with him. What is the purpose, what is the purpose of your life? What is the chief end of man? Is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you know what your purpose here on this earth is? It's to make much of God and enjoy him forever. Do you know what the purpose of the book of Revelation is? It's to enjoy God and, and, and live, him, live it out in a time and a space where it may be crazy, but whatever it is, it brings glory to God. God receives all the glory for all the judgment. Glory receives all, God receives all the glory for the victories, all the bulls, all the, all the earthquakes, all the things that are going to come, God receives glory for. And friends, I want you to know that. Our world is a broken world, but God receives praise from everything. If this world will not cry out, Jesus said even the rocks would. And they do, and they will. The second thing is that this book teaches us is the relevance and reliability of the Bible. We see the Old Testament quoted in the New. If the Old Testament wasn't true, then everything we've read about in the book of Revelation is false. It teaches us that we can have relevance from the Old Testament, and we can see continuity between the new and the old and not discontinuity. You know, there are some people out there today, maybe you've heard of them, who believe that the God of the Old Testament's this, uh, this really mad guy. He just zaps people down dead he doesn't like, and there's no love with him, and he's all judgment, 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 judgment. And then somehow in the New Testament, he switches hats, and in the New Testament, he's all lovey-dovey Jesus, and oh, just come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Well, the book of... Revelation squares for us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he doesn't change. What he was in the Old Testament is the same as what he's in the New, that we will be with him forever. And thank God for that. Three, that God is sovereign. More than any end times view, this may make some of your all skin crawl more. This is not a Calvinistic statement, a Reformed statement, a Presbyterian statement, a Baptistic statement, a whatever statement. God is sovereign. He is on his throne. He is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases, and he does it with full right and reign because he's God and I'm not, and that's my place. But in the book of Revelation, he will say, I will be vindicated, my people will be vindicated, and I will have my kingdom and the people for which my son Jesus Christ died for, the bride price. Number four. 
This makes Nelson happy. He wishes we would sing more songs about this, Brian. Hint, hint. Number four, suffering is real for Christians. Suffering is real for Christians. We did one today, brother. You're right. He's thinking this through. Uh, Nelson, Nelson often brings up, we all have our, 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 our points we make, and one point I appreciate Nelson bringing up often is that we, he wishes we would sing more lament or sorrowful songs because life is often lamentable and sorrowful, not because God isn't true, but because God is good. Yes, the third song we did today, Afflicted Christian, was a great representation of that. But suffering is real. One, people, one reason people don't like the book of Revelation because it pictures death. It pictures God stepping on people as the wrath of God like a wine press. I mean, there's some vivid language here. He's going to throw heaven and earth into hell. It's real stuff. Sin is real. Suffering is real. Martyrdom is real. People really die for the cause of Christ around the world. You know that well here at Tower View. Our adversary, Satan, walks around like a roaring lion, Peter said, looking for someone to devour, the accuser of the brethren. His wars against the church is real. His hatred of the people of God is real. I mean, what about our brothers and sisters in China and, and Afghanistan and around the world right now? Can we really say to them with a straight face, don't worry. Before it gets really bad, you're going to be raptured out of here? What about right now? Well, the book of Revelation says that the people of God often suffer worse than others do because they are the people of God. We're not always taken out. In fact, Timothy was told by Paul, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. It was good for me to be afflicted, Psalm 119.71, so I might learn your decrees. But there's also the certainty and severity of God's judgment. I know we don't preach on this a lot at many churches, but you need to know it's a real thing. It is coming. There is coming a day. Can I dare say we have sissified Jesus Christ? We have made him into a shampoo model that looks like uh, that guy who does the butter commercials, Fabio. If you look at any picture of Jesus, his wavy yellow hair is like this. And he's got, oh, he's, he's, he's all prim and proper. He doesn't have a stain on him. He looks so great. Look, if you got your 1960s or 70s picture of Jesus up in your house, I'm not putting any shame on you. I'm just saying that's not a picture, accurate picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is coming with a sword on a white horse to set this world in motion. I don't know what his hair is going to look like outside of what chapter 1 just said, but it's as white as wool. His feet are burnished bronze. His eyes are like fire. He's coming. But there is coming a day, Paul said in Acts 17.30 on Mars Hill, where he has set a day where he will judge the world in righteousness. Number six, there is a certainty of Christ's return. That sounds obvious but he's actually coming. Do you believe that? He's coming again. Jesus is coming. It could be now. It could be in a moment. It could be in 50 years. It could be whenever. I posted on Facebook uh, uh, just several names of people. Do you realize that there are people every single... <laughs> I'll just give you my cards for next week. May 21st, 2011, where were you? May 21st, 2011, where were you? There was a man on Family Life Radio called Harold Camping. Many of you may remember him, 89 years old, who said, May 21st, 2011, the end is going to come. People sold their homes. You saw the billboards. It was all over TV. May 21st came, and did Jesus come back? No. I appreciate his heart because I think he really wants Christ to come. Amen? I appreciate he wants to reach people for Christ. I appreciate that he desired to show people Christ. 
We don't know the day or the hour, but we know it's for sure. And finally, the end of redemptive history is going to come. I love in Revelation 22 that we get to go back to Genesis 2 in a sense. It's a beautiful picture. In Genesis 3, we have the fall. In, in Genesis 2, everything's perfect. In the book of Revelation, it's more like Genesis 3. Everything's mass chaos. But at the very end in Revelation 22, it's like Genesis 2. Everything's perfect. Everyone is set in their ways. And it's coming to that end. Kim Riddlebarger said it this way, and I'll close with this. He said, quote, The book of Revelation clearly reminds us that God is sovereign over human history. And that he will do as he said he will do. He will turn human sin and suffering into good. The redemptive story that takes us from creation to the fall to a new creation. God not only will save his people, he will save all his creation. Tower View, God wins. And if that does not excite you, I don't care how many details of revelation I give you, nothing will. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I would encourage you, I'd exhort you, I'd plead with you, dare I even say I'd beg you, come to him. He died for you, he gave his life for you, and he's the only way to heaven. Christian, fasten your seatbelt. We're gonna hit some bumps along the way, but I pray that you see Christ magnified and lifted up. Will you pray with me this morning? Let's go before our Lord. Fathers, we come to you on this very unusual overview sermon day. It's very different than what we're used to here. Most churches are used to. Father, I thank you that you are the God of details. You are the God that in all things, shapes and forms, has given us the greatest hope in Christ. Even thinking, as we did in our class in John 19, about the details of the crucifixion, how every little thing pointed back to the sovereign God, you, Father, sending your Son, at the right moment, at the right time, under the right circumstances, we just had to sit back and sit in awe of how good you are. Father, so much more we are reminded in the book of Revelation that there are details and things and people and dates and, and such that we may not fully understand. But we do understand that you are in control and you win and you are victorious. God is victor. Father, thank you for that. Jesus, Lord Jesus, thank you, and Spirit, thank you, the blessed three-in-one Trinity that we will worship. Father, I pray for our church in the days ahead. I pray it is exciting because it's, it's, it's a new book. It's a new study. I pray that we are more excited about who you are and what you've shown us about ourselves in this book than we are about any details or figuring out charts or patterns or whatever else. But more so, Lord, I pray you guard our unity here at this church. I pray you guard the unity of hearts here, that one view of revelation doesn't become more important than the other, or one's right and one's wrong. And Father, help us all to be humble. Help us all to be loving. Help us all to bear one another, with one another as you have uh, bared our burdens day by day. And we thank you for that. Father, but we thank you most of all for sometimes how the most severe straightforwardness of a book can convert a human heart. Would you save people through the preaching of this book, the teaching of it, the talking about it, the sharing of it, whatever it is. Pray for all the young ones in here, including three of my own. Pray for older folks here, middle-aged, whatever, who, who may not yet know Christ. Would this be the time and the study and the hour that you would open their hearts? Father, for all things, we want to glorify you. May we not lose the forest for the trees, even though the details are intriguing. We want to chase those, Lord. May we always see you high and lifted up. For you're the one who opens that great book of life. And those whose name is written in the book of life go to heaven. And those whose name is not go the opposite way to hell. 
Father, we embrace both realities because you are good. Thank you that on the cross, love and mercy kissed or married the wrath of God. Then in Christ, it is truly finished. May he be exalted in all this time. We pray this all in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.